You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms. Now, Savage has just released their new shotgun called the Renegade. The Renegade is tough, reliable, and ready for anything. Whether you're busting clays, dropping ducks, or whacking turkeys, Renegade is built to withstand tough use in extreme conditions. For more information about the Renegade shotgun, visit savagearms.com slash renegade ladies and gentlemen welcome to the nine finger chronicles podcast i'm your host dan johnson and today we have a very interesting episode I'm going to be speaking with Dieter Kocken. He is a highway patrolman uh, in a canine unit, and he is, or a state trooper, I believe, but he operates a canine unit dog, right? So these dogs have been trained to do a lot of things, right? They've been trained to uh, identify certain smells, follow certain smells. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking with Dieter about how he has started to understand deer a little bit more based off of the training that he and his dog have received um, through this program, through this dog training program that he, you know, these these cop dogs, these canine units uh, go through every uh, every time they they uh, introduce a new dog to the the force. So that's what this episode's about. Um, he talks about um, how deer use the wind to their advantage, uh, the actual biology of their nose. Uh, talk a little bit about moisture versus dry thermals and whatnot. So it's a pretty uh, pretty exciting episode. I know he had. Me engaged the whole time, and uh, I really appreciate him coming on the podcast. But before we get into the episode, we got to do a little bit of a commercial here, and it's for Wasp Broadheads. Now, you guys have heard me talk about Wasp now f- almost since the beginning of this uh, beginning of the the episode, and our uh, God dang, I have a brain fart right now. I apologize. But uh, wasp, wasp broadheads, man, they make some kick-ass heads, right? Most of their broadheads are American-made, and they are built like brick shit houses. Uh, they have—I uh, don't know how many times I've shot a broadhead into the dirt or into a, a, a wall, or you know, just to test them out, right? And they don't break straight up. They don't break, and uh, I'm a huge fan. I've been a huge fan. All the way from back in the day when I was using their jackhammers to I'm kind of a fixed blade guy now and I love their Boss 4 blades. And I think they got a couple new broadheads coming out fairly soon, so uh, keep an eye out for that. If you want to find out more information about some of the toughest broadheads on the market that literally just do a good job of killing stuff, you need to check out wasparchery.com. All right, enough is enough. Let's get into today's episode about scent and how deer smell with Dieter Cocken. On the phone with me right now, Mr. Dieter Cocken. How you doing, man? Very good. Good to be here. Hey, appreciate you uh, taking time to hop on the show. I know that we had a uh, we had to bounce this around a couple times to find a slot that works, but here we are, Saturday morning. Just kind of did. Are you a coffee drinker? I am. So, did you get a good a good cup or two in before we started recording? I've had a couple cups, so I think I'm ready to go. Good deal. Are you a straight black guy, or do you mix anything in with it? I usually mix a little bit in there. So, what's your what's your go to creamer? Uh, I usually go with uh, simple 
something flavored, a little bit of chocolate. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, my wife is a uh, huge fan. I used to be a, a cappuccino guy, you know, back in the day, but I don't know. Maybe it's just for convenience sake. I am. I just go straight to the black, straight to the black and keep it that way. Definitely easier. <laughs> so, uh, Dieter, you reached out to me on the... Um, uh, via email and you're like, Hey man, I got a, I got an idea about a podcast. Um, you have some experience with dogs and how they smell. And, uh, we're just going to have kind of an open forum chit chat here to talk about how, you know, how deer or how, how dogs smell and how we might be able to relate that to how deer smell. Um, and, uh, and we're going to get into that, but real quick, where do you live and what do you do for a living? I live in the northern UP of Michigan, so way up north, pretty much directly north of Green Bay. So way up there, we kind of, when people from lower Michigan talk about northern Michigan, they're usually not talking about where from we're at. So we're way up here. We get uh, two, three hundred inches of snow, so it's definitely a, a winter environment. I've been bow hunting for 30 years. I actually played professional hockey for 10 years and kind of bounced around mostly in the minor leagues. Oh, nice. I was able to hunt in a bunch of states out east, so Connecticut, New York, Massachusetts. I've kind of been all over. Um, I've been a Michigan State Trooper for 12 years, currently in the, the K-9 unit. And, you know, I've kind of been able to correlate the experience I've, having, I've had running a dog and how they relate to human odor and yeah. correlated that back to the experiences I've had bow hunting. Yeah. It's, uh, so 10 years playing hockey, 10 years roughly as a, uh, a state trooper in a canine unit. I bet you have a lot of stories that you could tell. Yeah, plenty of stories. <laughs> a lot of them I guess can't talk about on, the, on a podcast, but uh, yeah, a lot of experience experiences a lot of good times definitely enjoyed playing hockey love what i do now especially working with the dogs yeah i'm 45 years old now so nice you know getting to the point in in my hunting career where it's kind of like i gotta stay at it hard while i can yeah yeah absolutely so um i'm sure you have seen it the movie that i'm talking about but uh my dad <laughs> would uh let me and my brother watch this hockey movie called slap shots um, back in the back in the eighties, I think it was an eighties movie where where there there was like a, a set of triplets and all the the Hanson brothers, I think it was, and all they did was fight when they got on the on the ice. Yeah, that's a a definite hockey classic. Those guys actually played in Marquette, Michigan, which is that's where I went to college at Northern Michigan. They played in that uh, in that city for uh, it would have been some it was some type of professional league i believe i don't know if the nhl was going on it must have been going on at the time so it was kind of like a minor league but they actually played there wow that's <laughs> it, now now i know that's a movie and there's hollywood involved but when you first started uh, i'm gonna say maybe 20 years ago when you were playing hockey was it was it straight rough like it uh i feel like hockey's not as rough as it used to be yeah it's it's definitely not as rough as it used to be i think you know, even back to the the 80s, there's way more enforcer-type players compared to now. You know, there's there's few in the NHL compared to every league. Every team had a had a tough guy back in the day, and you know, some of the minor leagues were just filled with with lots of guys who their specialty was was fighting so it's, it's changed quite a bit i love it how you say their specialty and in hockey there's a guy on the team with the title enforcer like all right dude get in there and go just slap somebody around and we don't care if you get a penalty <laughs> just you know yeah, i mean they wouldn't even go they wouldn't even go on the ice unless they're they're going out there to fight so, <laughs> so things have changed a bit right it's more of a, a skill game now so right one of my one of my favorite YouTube videos is um, this these two kids. I'm I'm saying they're like five years old, maybe even younger. They're out there, you know, just barely able to to skate, and you know, two of them bump into each other, and instantly 
that both these young kids throw their gloves off at the same time and they're they're posturing up with each other before like a, the one of the dads comes in and, and breaks them up but they they must have been watching old film with their with their dad and, and watching the uh the, the fights go on and these guys these little kids were just like ready to get at it that's definitely a different sport yeah. i mean it's one of the few <laughs> sports where fighting's actually allowed to some degree but yeah. uh yeah. All right. So now how long have you been involved with dogs then as a, as a state trooper? So I've been in the canine unit, I think probably about, I think this is my fourth year. So right. I'm by no means an expert on dogs or dog training. I'm lucky to be in a unit. We're one of the bigger units in the country and one of the busiest. So there's a lot of guys with a ton of experience we're fortunate enough where we train all our own dogs. So yeah. some places they have, they'll have a pre-trained dog where the dog's previously been trained and then the handler just kind of learns how to, to operate the dog. But we're lucky enough where we train all our own dogs. So we go to Lansing for 14 weeks to train the dog. And the first four weeks are probably just about dog physiology and psychology. So you learn actually how to train the dog. So if you have problems down the road, you can fix them and then it gives you a better understanding of how the dogs learn and, and what you need to correct any problems that come yeah. along. Gotcha. So as you're starting to do these, this training, as you're starting to understand dogs, what are some, what are some things that maybe caught you off guard or you were taken back and you're like, Oh my God, I didn't realize this or just how, how impressed you were with some of these animals and what they could actually do. I mean, it's pretty amazing when you think about, you know, their sense of smell and how they're able to use that. Our dogs in our unit, you know, some are trained narcotics, some arson, some bomb dogs, backpack bomb dogs, cadaver dogs, cyber dogs, which are trained on the glues that are on basically any computer equipment, thumb drives and stuff like that. That is crazy. So it's amazing what they're able to do, but at the same time, they're not going to smell what's not presented to them. So unless the airflow or wind or whatever you want to call it brings that odor molecule to their nose, they're not going to smell it. So, I mean, when you think about deer hunting and downwind and manipulating the wind and positioning your tree stands in areas where, you know, the deer feel comfortable walking, but it gives you an advantage, you know, it all kind of correlates back to you know the deer or dog's ability to detect those odor molecules yeah so when you go through this training process and you know you you take it you know take it from a pup who doesn't know anything to a a full grown or you know a, a, a fully trained animal what does that look like what's that training process look like and how do you teach a dog to identify specific smells? So the, the dogs are just trained step by step by step. So you start at the, the easiest skills and then you build from that. So the dogs, when we get them, they don't know how to sit or do anything. So you're, you're training each component into the dog. And it's based on, I mean, a lot of different theories. I guess you go back to classical conditioning which is basically if you pair one thing with something that the dog naturally does over a period of time that the dog is going to learn that behavior so the the classical conditioning model was if you present food to the dog the dog is going to naturally drool but if you present food and ring a bell at the same time if you do that enough times eventually if you just ring the bell the dog will drool so it's pairing you know, one component with another component to teach the dog to kind of subconsciously learn that skill. And then the other way to train the dog is with reward training or possibly, you know, negative reinforcement. But, you know, if you do so many reps, the dog will eventually learn what's going on. So it's usually 20 to 40 repetitions, but some dogs learn quicker than others. And the same things for deer. I mean, I think the deer learning from the information we provide them. And if, do a thing enough times the deer's going to either avoid that area or, or learn from it and react to it in that way. So it kind of, you know, all animals learn the same way. 
right. even people. I think the Pavlov's law of classical conditioning is what's used in advertising, where if you pair one thing that you have a positive reaction to with another one, you know, that positive reaction correlates to the whatever you're trying to sell to the to the public. Right. So let's say uh, one of your dogs is you're you're teaching it how to f- smell drugs, right? Or th- you're conditioning them to when they do smell drugs or find drugs, you're giving them a reward. Thus, they they want to go. They like rewards. They like treats. So they want to go out and find the the drugs. Is that that's right? Correct. They're okay. rewarded with their ball, and basically the whole the, the dog's whole life revolves around police work so the dog doesn't sit around in the house it doesn't have access to toys unlimited you know it has it gets its ball when it does what it's supposed to do so when the dog comes in contact with the odor it's taught to sit as the final response to it finding the odor and then it's rewarded with the ball so the dog's motivated to look for and find that odor in order to get its reward okay so is there a point where the dog learns that that is its job and it no longer cares about the reward it just wants to go do its job uh, it's generally reward based because okay. it has no i mean it it doesn't really it doesn't know what drugs smell like it really doesn't care you can train the dogs to detect anything i mean shed antler dogs looking for the odor of shed so it's not really about the it's about the odor it's more about the reward and the dog you know, basically just doing what it what it's trained to do, and it it's the dogs are highly motivated. Most of our dogs are well, all our dogs are imported from Europe, where the you know they're bred more for the working lines, and you know they're highly motivated animals that you know they're not going to get uh, where they get bored with the task. You know, if you're if you're tracking a a suspect or could be a lost child or something like that i mean the dogs are motivated to continue to look for that person until they find them compared to you know a lot of house dogs might lose interest halfway through so the the dogs are bred for police work and they're high energy and high motivation gotcha okay so once you start to realize uh once you start to realize that you know these these dogs are a tool um how impressed are you like you've already mentioned that these these dogs can do some pretty amazing things with their noses how how amazing like give us an example of or or an idea of how powerful like a, i guess a police dog's nose would be i guess some a lot of the examples i mean we've had cadaver dogs that have been able to smell people underwater through you know concrete um, we use our dogs a lot for missing people complaints and, you know, what the dog can accomplish searching for a person compared to, you know, if you just send people out there looking is pretty amazing where the dogs are able to detect the people from a further distance. But again, I mean, if the dog's not downwind or in an area where that, that scent molecule is traveling, they're not going to, they're not magical. They have to be in the right area where they're able to come in contact with that odor. And then the, the dogs are trained to locate the lowest detectable odor and then follow that odor to the source of the odor. So I guess that's the big thing that's different from like any dog training or dog test you do with, with human odor. They're trained to find that lowest detectable odor and follow it to source compared to like a deer is going to detect odor and then make a difference whether or not it thinks it's in trouble. So it's not necessarily about whether or not, you know, a deer detects human odor. It's more about how it reacts to that human odor and where, how far away it thinks that odor is. Okay. Or how, so I, I wrote a a paper, I, I'm making it sound like I'm some doctor, but I, I wrote an article a while back, and I think what I'll do is I'll repost it on the Sportsman's Nation website. But this article was about how I feel that a deer can walk through the woods. They'll smell a human, but depending on the potency or the uh, concentration of that odor, it will have a different reaction. 
right? If, a, if you're in a tree and a deer walks by you and it just gets hit with this gigantic, you know, concentration of human scent, it's going to run away and it's going to be freaked out. It's going to run away. However, if I leave that tree stand and I, you know, two hours later, a deer comes by and he smells something, but it's not a lot. He's probably going to just, I don't know, maybe even become curious, you know, curious or just say, oh, it's not a threat and continue walking. Do you think, do you think that the dogs that you've worked with have different responses to different concentrations of the same uh, molecule or odor? Yeah, you can definitely see that in the dogs where you can tell when you get closer to a person. So you can tell from the dog's behavior when the odor is getting stronger. Uh, the dogs are the dogs are trained to locate people two different ways. One way is by tracking where they follow the area where the person has walked. The other way is by air scenting where basically you're putting the dog downwind of a person and the dog's able to locate the odor and then fall to the source by being downwind. So I've, I've definitely seen where the dogs will react differently when they get closer, higher concentrations of odor. And I definitely believe that's the case with deer where the deer's sense of smell is so sophisticated where they can, I mean, they can detect, detect odors in the parts for trillion. They can break down odors where they, smell each component of the odor similar to like if you we smell a pizza they'll smell every single ingredient yeah so i think it'd be it's logical to think that the deer when they detect an odor they're going to correlate that odor to a certain distance and you'll see that in deer that are in a suburban environment you know they're perfectly fine with people being in their yards but as soon as the people leave the yards and go into the woods you know they're They'll react negatively to that, and they can they can tell how far away that odor is based on their experiences in their environment, and they'll tolerate so much in some areas and so much in different areas. So I think, I mean, when you look at it from a deer hunting aspect, you know, I believe what you're saying, where if if you're able to lower your odor to a certain level deer's basically going to react to that odor differently because it thinks you're further away than you actually are. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about ways, you know, like obviously there's drugs being moved all over the United States at all different times. Right. What are some ways that, and I'm not, I'm not trying to ask about how to, you know, keep drugs safe in your car. What I'm asking here is, can you trick a dog's nose? Right. Um, can you trick, uh, cause I, I watched a, a short documentary once on police dogs and the only thing that really beat a dog's nose was it didn't necessarily beat it, but they tricked, um, they tricked the police dog's nose, which was a male with female hormone. And instead of looking for the drugs, it just became overwhelmed with trying to find the female. Yeah, I don't think you can't trick the dog's nose. He's either he's going to be able to detect whatever odor is there. So if there's a a narcotic odor there, he's going to be able to detect the, detect that odor. But I mean, the dog's going to prioritize odors just like a deer's going to prioritize odors. I mean, there's danger odors, there's curiosity odors, there's breeding odors, there's food odors, and depending on the dog, I mean, at that point in time, he might be more interested in the in the female odor, yeah, but yeah. he's still going to detect the odor. You never, you can't, I guess that's the thing where the, the scent reduction argument goes astray is it is, it's impossible to be odor free, but it's more important how the deer reacts to the odor than whether or not it can detect the odor. You're not going to eliminate the odor, but if you lower the odor to a level, you're going to, basically throw a monkey wrench into the deer's ability to calculate how far away you are. And if it thinks you're further away than you actually are, that could potentially present an opportunity that you might not have. I think when you look at 
scent reduction, there's a couple different components. One would be just flat out hunting the wind where the, the odor most likely is never going to come in contact with the, with the deer's nose. The other way would be hunting from tree stands. And that's one part I think that gets overlooked when people talk about odor, because if you put somebody in a tree, it drastically reduces the deer or dog's ability to make a calculation of where that person is exactly. Because if you think about, people talk about scent cones where the odor is leaving the hunter and it travels into the woods in a, in a cone shape. Well, the outsides of the cone is basically the fringe of the odor, and then the middle of the cone would be the, the highest concentration of the odor. But when you lift that cone up into the air, there's also a lower fringe of the odor, and the, the middle of the odor, the highest concentration, may never actually come in contact with the ground, depending on the wind. So when you hunt from an elevated position, I mean, that's a significant way to control your, your human odor. And then the other ways would be personal hygiene, taking a shower, washing your equipment. And then, you know, the final way would probably be like mechanical methods, which would be ozone or other ways like that to reduce human odor. And all of those are kind of put together where, you know, you don't necessarily have to do anything other than hunt the wind or hunt from a tree stand. But if you do those other things, it can give you an advantage where the deer might not negatively react the way it would if it actually knew that you're as close as you were okay so have when you guys run tests on your dog to see if they're ready um have you guys ever done any ozone testing where you try to mask drugs with ozone you can't because of the way the dogs are trained they're trained to locate the lowest detectable odor so the ozone probably isn't going to eliminate every single odor to where the dog wouldn't be able to te- detect it. Like there's still going to be some particles of odor and all the dog is going to need is, you know, to de- detect the odor and then it's going to continue looking for it and it's going to try to follow it to the source. So ozone would reduce the amount of odor, but it's not going to eliminate all the odor. And it's the same thing when you're hunting your tree stand i mean you can't reduce all human odor but the ozone's gonna reduce a certain percentage of that odor you know theoretically depending on the the wind and where the ozone unit's position but it's gonna it's gonna reduce some odor and then i guess the the points of the argument would be you know one does a deer judge distance based on odor concentrations? And I, and I think they do. It'd be hard to argue that they don't. I mean, they have, I think a deer has, you know, almost 300 million olfactory receptors in their nose compared to the dog has 220. And we only have, we only have 5 million. And I think even with our 5 million, if you put a pizza foot away from you or 15 feet away, you'd probably be able to, judge which one's further away so i think that a deer would clearly be able to judge distance based on odor concentration the second point would be you know is a human capable of reducing their human odor and just by washing your clothes and showering i mean that i think we all can agree you can reduce human odor and the people would say it's it's not worth even trying to reduce human odor because it's not possible well i mean if you're working out and then going on a date you're probably going to take a shower you're not thinking you know what's the point in even trying to reduce my odor because it's impossible you know you can reduce it to some to some level and then if you think those two things are true then does a deer react differently when they think you're 10 yards away compared to 50 yards compared to 100 yards so it's all just you know different components where you know you can potentially get an advantage but it's such an odd argument where people seem they're polar opposites and argue about this technique or that technique and you know you don't have to do any type of scent reduction methods other than probably hunting the wind but at the same point in certain situations it can give you a significant advantage depending on where you hunt 
you know, how many times you plan on hunting there, access, and a whole different uh, array of issues that I think all hunters kind of come in contact with. Okay. So there's probably uh, obviously a different, there's the obvious differences of how a deer, like a deer doesn't necessarily get trained. It gets trained by, um, like real world scenarios, right? Like if they smell a coyote and then, then, and then they have a negative interaction with a coyote, right? It chases them. It tries to eat them. Then every time they smell a coyote, they want to run away. Now, if they smell just like uh, conditioning through other places, like say someone's backyard in an urban area, a deer smells a human. The human doesn't try to chase them. They just know that, you know, that's a human and so then they become comfortable with humans and comfortable with humans. So a lot of it probably has to do with the environment that they live in and what, you know, how they're conditioned to, uh, let's see, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, how they're conditioned to, I don't know, uh, God dang, I'm missing the word here. But anyway, you know, whether they should run or it's okay. Yeah, they're, I mean, I'd say they're definitely conditioned by their their experiences right um you know when people talk about pressured deer non-pressured deer you know it definitely has a has an effect in how they react to different things because i mean it's positive negative reinforcement where you know every situation is different and if they've had negative experiences they're going to react differently than if they've had kind of neutral experiences with odor but I think all deer, you know, naturally they're going to be a little bit, you know, worried when they come in contact with human odor. And then some deer, just like dogs, I'm sure, are naturally inclined to learn with fewer repetitions than, than other deer. I think the deer that, you know, it's going to take them 20, 40 repetitions to learn that that's some situation might be da- dangerous are probably the ones that are getting shot compared to you know, the larger deer in an area are probably naturally inclined to learn from fewer repetitions and just that genetic trait keeps them safer than, than other deer. In Michigan, we're allowed to hunt in bait over baits down the UP and, you know, the deer that don't learn very quickly that bait piles are dangerous are the ones that are getting shot pretty quick. And then the ones that learn early on that, that a bait pile is a dangerous situations are the the ones that live to be an older age class so i think all all deer every time we step into the woods the deer has the opportunity to learn from what we did just like any animal so you know when we're hunting certain areas you know i definitely think about you know what did i do today and what did could the deer potentially have learned from it and you have to think about you know, every time you walk to your tree and you walk back, that's a that's a track you put on the ground, and the deer are gonna at some point come in contact with the with that track and and how they react, and that track is gonna have just like when I'm tracking, you know, a missing person or a, a suspect, that track's gonna have kind of a shelf life where, you know, for argument's sake, it could be from two hours to two days it'll last. So, I mean, if you go to the gas station, walk around in gasoline and then walk out to your tree stand, well, that track is going to have a long shelf life where, I mean, our arson dogs can detect gasoline and diesel in a fire scene probably weeks after the fact. So, I mean, when you think about how you're walking and what you're actually leaving for a track, you know, I mean, if we can keep the, the shelf life of that track on the low end, it's going to be a significant advantage when when those deer actually come in contact with the area we walk through okay all right so let me ask you this uh what is your you're a bow hunter what is your let me let me back up back up a second you're a bow hunter knowing what you know about how dogs smell and in theory translating that over to how deer smell what is your scent regimen what before you go hunting or even after I go through, I, I use ozone a lot. Like I'll, 
I use it in the tree and then I use it kind of to decontaminate my clothes. I'll wash my clothes. I take a shower. I'm not, uh, you know, I don't, I think when people talk about scent reduction, I mean, they talk about the, it, it's a cost benefit equation. So the, the cost is the time you spend washing your clothes or taking care of them. And then the benefit is that, you know, you're presenting less odor to the deer and could potentially get a, get a shot opportunity that you otherwise wouldn't get. So my scent reduction method is, you know, I like to control as much of my human odor as possible. I generally hunt all day to limit my entry and exit into the woods. And I take every precaution to, to utilize the wind. I hunt from tree stands that are fairly high to take advantage of that element. And then I use ozone in the tree to kind of give me a little bit more of an advantage. It all kind of adds up. So, I mean, every, every step you take to kind of reduce your odor is going to give you just a, a little bit more of an advantage. Okay. And, uh, have you, have you seen, like for me, I'm a huge, like I love ozone. I love using ozone, uh, in, uh, after the hunt when I'm, you know, cleaning my clothes, I used to, uh, I love to use ozone, even walking into the tree stand and walking, you know, obviously in the tree stand. Um, I've seen some really good results for it, you know, using it over the years. Have you seen any, um, I don't know. I'll just tell a quick story here. I can remember running uh, an ozone unit all day. Now, obviously, there's not a hundred percent way to tell what exactly happened, but I, I had deer walking across this trail downwind to me all day, and uh, then later on in the hunt, my battery in my unit, my my uh, ozonics died. Then, as as it died the deer became more aware of something that was not right right now obviously the thermals could have changed a lot of things could have changed but i see that and now i'm conditioned to think that that unit has been saving my butt all day and now the battery died on it and now i'm getting busted almost i would say 10 15 minutes after the battery died the deer started noticing all the way until right at last light where the deer just kind of were pegging me and just going the other way, even to the point of getting blown at, you know, by the does. So have you seen anything like that or had an experience like that, that made you think that ozone, uh, you know, for me, it's just like, oh, well, I'm never hunting without it. Yeah, I definitely think that ozone works i think there's i mean there's a lot of research to support that it it eliminates you know a certain percentage of human odor i think it's also i mean where you hunt has a huge impact just the locations not necessarily the state or anything like that because i can go down to wisconsin i can hunt for two weeks and i probably never get never get blown at or you know visually observe a deer that looks like it's alerted to my odor or anything like that. But back when I still hunted over bait in Michigan, if I came back to Michigan, all of a sudden, you know, I'd be getting blown at constantly. So in certain areas, I think that the deer are going to be way more on alert where, I mean, if they come into a bait pile, they're on pins and needles. If they smell any amount of human odor, they're going to alert compared to if you position yourself in places that, basically take them off guard, you're going to have a huge advantage to where, you know, they're kind of almost not really paying attention to the same level. I think that comes into play with first time sits where they're not as alerted as they would as if you're sitting in an area that you, that you frequently hunt. So I think where you position yourself in for your tree stand locations has a huge impact on that. If you think about, like when you drive to work, you're paying attention when you leave your driveway. But ha- driving to work, there's going to be periods where you're not really paying attention. And then when you, when you have to come to a stop later, a stop sign, you're going to pay attention again. 
And I think it's the same for the deer. I mean, when they come to a destination area, they're on pins and needles. They're really paying attention. But there's a lot of areas where they're walking where they're not going to be paying attention as much. And that's where, you know, you can really take advantage with, you know, lowering your human odor and hunting the wind, hunting from an elevated position and taking advantage of them not paying attention. I think that's the biggest thing with with first-time sits is usually you're hunting an area where they're just not really paying attention to what they're doing, and you can really take advantage of that. Okay. Uh, Now, kind of going back to dogs, are there any weather conditions that make it more difficult for a dog to smell what you're trying to get them to find? Moisture is the best thing for, for odor and odor retention. So the worst possible conditions would be you know, super dry, sunny, you know, windy conditions where the the odor is not going to stick around as long. So moisture generally ideal conditions, whether, you know, that's humidity, water, you know, a little bit of rain, obviously not a lot of rain. But there's, I mean, definitely environmental factors are huge when it, when it relates to, you know, a a dog's ability or deer's ability. And the big thing is that the odor molecule, you have to put the dog in a position where the odor molecule is going to come across its nose. So if, I mean, you're not going to, if you put the dog upwind of whatever you're looking for, it's not going to magically smell, smell that odor. And it's the same thing in deer hunting. Right. All right. So that, you know, with that said, then, you know, hunting a, the best chances of being busted are on a high humidity, uh, maybe even fog or sprinkles, you know, or rain, you know, where there's a lot of moisture in the air. Those are the days that the deer have the advantage in the woods. Yeah, there's, I mean, pressure. I mean, I'm, (laughs) I mean, that's, uh, I mean, there's so many factors. I mean, I yeah. definitely don't think think of myself as an expert on weather, you know. But uh, I mean, there's there's definite days where the dogs will perform better than others, and you know, it could be the dog just being a dog. But I mean, there's definitely weather conditions that are favorable to to odor. I mean, you can just look at. I mean, fog is obviously holding the odor closer to the ground. You know, if it's not if the wind isn't blowing as strong, it's not moving the the odor as far as it would otherwise. So, I mean, there's a ton, ton of different factors involved. Right. And that's why, I mean, the, the easiest thing to do is to, you know, pay attention to the wind direction, the thermals and try to make it so your odor doesn't travel in the direction where you think the deer are coming from. And then also hunting from an elevator, you're going to get away from, with a lot more from an elevated position than you would from the ground. Gotcha. So just as a yes or no answer here, can people trick a dog's nose? You can't, you can't trick a dog's nose. You can't trick a deer's nose. If that odor molecule comes in contact with their nose, they're going to detect it. Okay. So, you know, there's people out there who try to trick the deer's nose. You know, ozone's one of them. Spray, scent sprays are another one. Knowing what you know about uh, how a dog smells, would, would you feel confident saying that uh, these, these spray companies, you know, they, they say, well, this kills 99.9% of, the, of your odor? Uh, is that, is that BS or is that, you know, I don't know what I'm, is that BS or is that, does that have some legitimacy? Like, do you think that if a guy sprays down liberally with a, uh, one of those scent sprays, he'll walk into the timber and just be like, boom, they they don't even know I'm here. I generally don't use much for sprays. The dog, the dogs are detect are trained to detect, uh, we'll do a property search where that could be evidence. Somebody could be running from a cry and they could throw a knife or a tool or something in the woods. And the dogs are trained to locate the human odor and find those objects. And if you take a 
screwdriver and spray it with the spray, the dog's going to still detect it. You know, whether or not it reduces the odor to some degree, I'm not sure. But I think the important thing is you can't, you can't trick a dog's nose. You can't trick a deer's nose, but it's not in deer hunting. It's more important how the deer reacts than whether or not it can smell the human odor. So if the deer smells a level of human odor that it's not concerned about, you know, that's a positive result as a hunter because that's going to present an opportunity that may not otherwise be presented. So the argument that you can trick it, you can't trick a deer's nose. If he, he, if he smells the human odor, it's up to him how he's going to react. He's either going to react thinking he's in danger. He could be not necessarily paying attention as much, or he could be curious what's going on. I mean, a bunch of different things can happen, but if the odor hits his nose, he's going to detect it. And from there, it's up to him how he's going to react. Okay. So, so basically when a deer, let's just say walks through the woods and smells a human, they'll say, well, I smell a human, but I also smell a human covered in scent spray or, you know, like some kind of other spray. Like that's the detail from what I've read. That's the detail, right? They, they can see, they can smell like we see, like we see in layers, they can smell in layers. Correct. And that would be, you know, cover scents would basically be, you're adding a curiosity odor and the, you know, the deer's going to detect human odor and curiosity odor. And it's an, matter of whether or not that deer prioritizes you know that the human odor is danger or whether it's curious what that other odor is that's been combined with the human odor okay so it's it's never you you can't eliminate it or trick them it's just a matter of how that deer prioritizes the odor is it more interested in the curiosity same thing if you if you you, t- you mentioned the dog and uh you know the the dog and heat odor. It's the same thing with doe and heat odor. You know, there's, there's times in the hunting season where that deer might prioritize a doe and heat over the possible danger of the human odor. So you can't eliminate the human odor, but I mean, it's up to the deer to decide what it, what it thinks more is more important at that point in time. Right. So this kind of leads me into like you mentioned, cover sprays. Uh, I use nose jammer uh, every once in a while, uh, most mostly for entry entry routes. But I guess what I'm trying to say here is, on nose jammer, they proposition their product by saying, you know, when a deer walks through, they're going to get hit with this really potent smell that overrides their olfactory you know, their, their sense of smell to where the only thing that they, their brain can register is the, the, the cover spray. And it, you know, they would have to stay there a long time for their, their levels to be adjusted. Just like when you walk into the house of someone who may smoke cigarettes, if you're not, if you're a non-smoker, you walk in there and then the first thing that you smell is cigarettes. And it takes a while for your brain to adjust the levels in there to where you can start smelling other things as well, right? So do you think that uh, overwhelming, like throwing a, a smell into a dog's nose that's so concentrated that it will override their brain and trick it into thinking that there's nothing else there? I mean, there's some studies that look into that which you know, noxious odors and really strong odors and stuff like that. I I don't know if it'd work as well in an open environment compared to like a closed room where you're overpowered with, with so much odor. And sometimes you'll see the dogs will sneeze where they're trying to kind of clear out their, their sinuses. And I don't know if deer do that. You kind of see them do something similar to that. Yeah. But I mean, with no specifically with, with nose jammer, I'd say it'd be hard to put that much odor into an outdoor environment where it had that effect. My opinion would be that it becomes more of a curiosity odor to where they're kind of curious what it is, but I'm, I'd still 
feel that they're detecting the odor of the nose jammer combined with human odor. Yeah. This... And it's, you know, whether or not they feel like they're in danger or not. I mean, how have you seen them react to your your track? Yeah, so... I mean, that's why I, number one, that's why I use nose jammer is because I've had good experiences with it, right? I've seen deer cross my trail and maybe put their nose down and not worry about it, right? Um, I've, in the past, I, I just feel like I've seen, if I'm not using nose jammer, they'll stay there maybe just a little bit longer. They'll get curious. But at the same time, I've also seen deer put their nose to the ground and mostly young deer and smell that all the way back to my tree stand and that curiosity actually brings them closer and i don't want that to happen i just want them to kind of just keep walking so if there's ever an access route that i I take to a tree stand that actually crosses deer movement uh, i've seen it work 50 50 right most i mean i maybe even more than that most of the time they just kind of catch it they smell around and they keep moving but there are a handful of deer every season that follow that back to the tree stand and sometimes they follow that right up to the to the base of my stand and they see me and sometimes they just mill around for a little bit and then they split yeah i mean there's a lot that goes on with with tracks i guess there's been a lot of research on on dogs tracking and that goes back to world war one the germans were studying dogs and they did a couple different tests they did a test where they took uh a wooden wheel with zero human odor. They rolled it over the ground. And some of the dogs were able to follow that track with no human odor. And then they did another test where they set up an apparatus similar to like, uh, you know, like a chairlift where the human was carried over the ground without touching the ground. And only some of the dogs were able to follow that track. So basically every time we lay a track, walk into our tree. There's two different components to that track. The one is the ground disturbance from us mashing the vegetation and that odor, similar to when you cut your grass, that odor is released. And then the other component is the human odor component. And the human odor component is skin rafts coming off of our body, any contact we might have with the ground. Um, you know, if we touch anything with bare hands, what our footwear is, if there's any odors like i was saying you know if you walk through the gas station with your boots so part of that track we're in control of how much odor we're leaving if we're not touching things with our bare hands and our our pants and our boots are you know limited as much as possible to the amount of odor that's on them that track life is going to be a lot shorter than if you know, you don't take any of those measures. You're walking through the parking lot and doing different things and depositing a lot of human odor right onto the track. So depending on how old your tracks are when you're using your nose jammer, you know, there could be a point where there's only, you know, there's less human odor and more nose jammer present on the track because the nose jammer is going to be a stronger odor when you're spraying it down there. But either way, there's going to be a track there and it's going to have a life of, you know, like I said, anywhere from two hours to a couple days, which is, I mean, if you think about if you're hunting, if you're hunting one area for a week, which is why I I hunt all day, because if if I hunt an area for a week, I'm only laying 14 tracks on the way to the tree and on the way back, 14 total tracks. If you hunt, you know, mornings and then evenings, you're laying 28 tracks. So you're doubling the chances that, the deer could negatively react to, to where you're walking, which is why I think a, a lot of guys who don't do any type of scent reduction, they're hunting a lot of different areas and they're not coming back to those areas. Because anytime you lay down a track, you know, the deer are going to have the opportunity to learn from it. And you can use that to your advantage. You know, if you're hunting one area and you lay down a bunch of tracks, you know, you could potentially push the deer into another area. And if you're moving around and, being mobile there's more of an advantage to you know kind of buggering up some areas and and moving into a different area at the same time but if you're limited to only hunting a small chunk of property you know it'd probably be advisable for you to pay attention to you know reducing your human odor and reducing 
the impact you're having on your your hunting location. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Well, other than what we've already discussed, what we've already talked about, this conversation about you know how dog and a dog's nose and a deer's nose and how they smell and how they operate right? How they make their decisions based off of smell. Uh, are there any, is there anything else that you've learned through dogs about deer? I think, uh, the biggest thing is, you know, where the dogs are going to be most effective to locate human odor. So I guess I'm most interested a lot of part of what I look into is, you know, the people don't do any type of scent, scent reduction when they talk about, you know, thermals and buck beds and those different areas where, you know, a deer is able to take advantage of, you know, multiple air currents coming into a certain area. Those areas are really important to me because if I'm looking for a person in a wooden environment, if I can put my dog into an area where he can smell three different valleys, I mean, that's a a huge advantage. So when we're looking for people, it's basically reverse deer hunting where we're using the dog's nose to locate people in the woods. And I have to think where the dog is going to be most effective. I have to put the dog, you know, on the downwind side. I have to pay attention to thermals. I have to pay attention to, you know, what other factors are affecting the airflow to to make the dog most effective. So that, that part of it has probably been most interesting as it pertains back to deer hunting, because that forces me to really look at, you know, where deer have a significant advantage and where deer are potentially vulnerable because those are the areas, you know, I need to utilize my dog to actually locate people. It's, it's reverse deer hunting where I'm almost the deer using my dog and interpreting his behavior as it relates to human odor in the woods gotcha yeah that's a good point well hey man i really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and chit chat with us um is there any resources that you use or or may know about you know to learn more about scent by chance maybe how dogs use it or how, how that may be able to translate into deer? Uh, I don't know if I can specifically think. I mean, a lot of it is, uh, you know, if you look at Ivan Pavlov, that's classical conditioning. Some of the, you know, when you talk about tracking dogs and training dogs, there's a bunch of different things and books. The one that I remember reading was Colonel Conrad Most. And that was more about tracking. And that actually had those studies where they utilized the wooden wheel and that uh, apparatus. I mean, there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of, you know, dog handlers with a ton of information. But the big thing is that, you know, when you look at a dog, how it relates to odor, it's going to be detecting the lowest detectable amount and then tracking it to source compared to a deer is never going to do that. So when when you set up studies trying to you know see how dogs relate directly to deer it's kind of an apples to oranges comparison because the deer's most likely never going to come in contact with human odor and then try to follow it to the source of the odor so they're kind of completely different things but you're able to learn from the dog's behavior when it comes into contact with human odor and kind of relate that back to deer so it's kind of it's a it's different difficult to kind of correlate things directly but we can certainly learn a lot about you know how odor travels through a wooded environment or thermals or different wind currents that relate directly back to deer hunting gotcha cool man well hey i really appreciate you hopping on uh, today and chit-chatting with us uh thanks for your time and uh good luck this upcoming season thank you And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Huge shout out 
to Dieter for taking time out of his day and uh, hopping on the podcast. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time to listen and huge shout out to the partners of this podcast that make it all happen. And those guys are Ozonics, Wasp Broadheads, Lone Wolf Portable Tree Stands, The Average Conservationist, and Vortex Optics. Man, please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. You know, they make it all go, they make it all possible. So please go do that. If you're not following on social media, be sure to follow the Nine Finger Chronicles on Instagram and Facebook and follow the Sportsman's Nation. We're doing a lot of awesome things. Don't forget about the YouTube channel. Don't forget about... Uh, the uh, you know iTunes subscribing to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast or the Sportsman's Nation Whitetail feed. So do me a favor, go subscribe to all of that stuff, follow all of that stuff, listen to all of our stuff, and spread the word. I'd really appreciate it. Other than that, have a great rest of your day, and please participate in the Cash for Conservation Challenge. And uh, 2020 is definitely about giving back.